Hello, my name's Anne Preetham and I'm a partner in the employment team in London here at Stevenson Harwood. A big welcome to our podcast in which I'll be speaking to Nick Mangan, an associate in our employment team, on the topic of redundancy and some of the more complicated questions we often receive from clients, including how to deal with part-time and fixed-term workers, bumping, redundancy and cheapy, and how an employer should treat long-term absent employees during a redundancy process. But before we launch into some of the harder questions on redundancy, can you please, Nick, just to refresh us, provide us with a high-level explanation of the legal framework for redundancy in the UK? Of course, Anne. Put simply, employees in the UK have a statutory right not to be unfairly dismissed if they have at least two years' service. There are some exceptions to that, but I won't dwell on those now. As we all know, for the individual dismissal to be fair, employers must have a fair reason to dismiss the employee, and the dismissal must be fair in all the circumstances. Generally, that means you must also follow a fair process in effecting that dismissal. There are five fair reasons for dismissal here in the UK, one of those reasons being redundancy. To establish redundancy, the employer will need to show one of the three sets of circumstances. 1. Business closure. Closure of the business altogether. 2. Workplace closure. For example, closure of one of several sites or relocation to a new site. And 3. Diminished requirements of the business for employees to do work of a particular kind. Aside from individual unfair dismissal rights, there is also a collective framework here in the UK which deals with redundancy. The definition of redundancy is different and in this context, redundancy means a dismissal which is not for a reason directly related to the individual concerned. Collective redundancy legislation applies where 20 or more employees are proposed to be dismissed as redundant at an employer's establishment in a period of 90 days or less. A failure to consult collectively can lead to a protective award of up to a maximum of 90 days actual pay per affected employee, which can be significant. An employer in these circumstances must also notify the Secretary of State. This is important because if an employer does not do this, this can result in criminal sanctions for the directors of the company. More often than not, however, employers will usually be dealing with redundancies on an individual basis or for fewer than 20 employees and so. For this podcast, we will be focusing on individual redundancies and how to get it right under the unfair dismissal regime. Employers need to know how to minimise risks in a redundancy process and to set itself up for the best possible defence against a claim by a former employee that the redundancy was unfair or a sham. Thanks, Nick. So one question I often receive from clients about redundancy is how employers should treat employees who are employed on a part-time basis. Two frequent questions I get are, first, do we need to treat part-time workers work of a particular kind? So that's the third limb of the redundancy definition for unfair dismissal that you mentioned earlier. And secondly... Do employers have to pool part-time employees with their full-time workforce? In response to the first part of your question, Anne, that is whether part-time work is work of a particular kind, the answer is simply no. Part-time work should be treated as the same kind of work as the work which full-time employees do for their employer. They should not be distinguished. Looking at the second part of your question, whether employers need to pool part-time workers with full-timers, the answer again is simple, and that is yes, they do. Part-time and full-time employees can be pulled together, employees should do so. It's important for employers to be aware that part-time workers are to be treated no less favourably than full-time workers, and this includes during a redundancy process. The criteria used to select jobs for redundancy should be objectively justified, and part-time workers must not be treated less favourably than comparable full-time workers. Okay, thanks. So if both part-time and full-time employees are pulled together... Does that mean, for example, that part-time workers should be pulled two-fifths or four-fifths or whatever fraction of hours they're employed to do at work? That's a tricky one. 
Employers should not assume that a part-time worker will not be willing to switch to a full-time role and vice versa, especially when considering whether the employer has suitable alternative employment. If you have job sharers, you will need to take particular care with them. So why is that? Well, an employer could have a situation where, for example, it needs to reduce headcount by one full-time role and the team it is focusing on has two full-time employees and two part-time employees who both do one full-time role on a job share basis. Let's say that the employer pulls all four employees. This could be tricky, for example, if under the redundancy selection criteria used for that pool, one part-time job sharer scores the lowest and the other job sharer part-time worker scores highly compared to the others. The employer is then still left with excess of half a role. If you made both redundant, an employer would be at risk of an unfair dismissal claim with the highly scored job sharer. Skewing the redundancy selection criteria to make it easier and select both part-time workers for redundancy would also be dangerous and should not be done as it may be seen as a detriment to the part-time workers. This would be unlawful. In this example, an employer may want to consider bumping, if appropriate. So that's a tricky question, and I'll come on to bumping very shortly. However, before I do, I had a final question on redundancy and part-timers. Are there any particular issues that employers should be aware of when preparing a redundancy process involving part-time workers? Part-time workers should not be subject to any detriment in employment or in a redundancy scenario because they are part-time workers. Like we just discussed before, with my example of part-time job sharers, no selection criteria should be skewed so as to disadvantage part-time workers. Any selection criteria for redundancy must also be objectively justified. Employers should also be aware that targeting part-time workers could also potentially lead to claims of indirect sex discrimination. I think that's important to know and something which is often overlooked on the uh, discrimination front. Bumping is also something I find clients tend to ask us to advise on, particularly whether or not they have to do this so-called bumping in law. The short answer is no. Employers are not strictly obliged at law to do bumping in every redundancy process. However, there may be circumstances where an employer should consider bumping and it may be unreasonable not to do so. Unfortunately, it's not as black and white as we would like. However, when an employer is preparing to undergo a redundancy process, it should turn its mind to the question of bumping to see whether it's reasonable in the circumstances and if it's not reasonable, it should also record its decision not to bump together with its reasoning for deciding not to do so. Okay then, let's try to get to the bottom of this with an example. Let's say we have a senior employee who's at risk of redundancy and there's a junior employee in an existing role that's not at risk but which the senior employee could do. Is an employer here required to bump the junior employee into redundancy in order to offer that role to the more senior employee as part of the redundancy process? You are not required to bump the junior. Not to get overly legal, but the case of Mirab and Mentor Graphics is the last in quite a long line of cases which neatly summarises current thinking on an employer's consideration of bumping in the range of reasonable responses, responses question for unfair dismissal. Older cases by the Court of Appeal and House of Lords, as it then was, have looked at bumping in the context of pooling too, i.e. ensuring that the pool is correctly drawn in the first place, which means that a senior employee may be considered for a junior position without it actually being a bumping situation. The short point is that you should give some consideration to bumping and that should ideally be recorded as a stage in the company's planning to ensure that the point cannot be successfully raised against an employer further down the line as part of an unfair dismissal claim, which I mentioned earlier. And how about employees employed under a fixed-term contract? Should they be included in the pooling exercise with permanent employees who perform at the same level and with the same job title, for example? 
Including the fixed term employee in the pool is the correct thing to do in light of the similarities in the roles which all the individuals appear to do. Like part-time workers, fixed term workers should not be selected for redundancy on the basis of their fixed term status. Ultimately, any risk will be best mitigated by having a very clear picture from the business of what their requirements are and solid pooling and selection criteria. However, and interestingly, Anne, fixed-term employment contracts which come to the end of their agreed duration are specifically excluded from the collective redundancy regime, which I mentioned earlier at the start of this podcast. So employers should be aware of this point if collective redundancy legislation kicks in. And if a business is being restructured in the context of an asset sale, how would TUPE impact the redundancy process? The redundancy process becomes more complex due to the protections afforded to employees under TUPE if there has been a transfer. Broadly speaking, and to just recap, in a TUPE transfer situation, dismissals will be deemed to be automatically unfair with a sole or principal reason for the dismissal is the transfer unless there is an economic, technical or organisational reason entailing changes to the workforce, otherwise known as an ETO. Essentially, a good business reason which will usually involve a restructuring or the business or services which are transferring will be provided in a different location. Two, changes to an employee's terms and conditions will be void if the reason for the variation is the transfer unless there is an ETO. And lastly, if any changes to terms and conditions are deemed a substantial change to the material detriment of the employee, then any employee in that position can treat their employment as having been terminated and potentially be able to claim automatic unfair dismissal. You can understand, Anne, that any redundancy process will have to be carefully planned out to ensure an employer does not breach its obligations under TUPE. In the TUPE context, the transferor employer must consult with the workforce about any measures which the transferee intends to take in relation to the employees. So, a transferee ought to tell the seller that it wants to make employees redundant because of an ETO reason. That should only happen after the transfer. However, the transferor employer has to consult with the affected employees on the proposed redundancies as these are measures envisaged by the transferee. Failure to inform employees about a transfer and or failure to consult with them about measures can lead to a protective reward of up to a maximum of 90 days actual pay per affected employee. Once the transfer has occurred, depending on the ETO reason, for example, if it's a restructure, then the transferee must draw the selection pools in such a way so as to include its current workforce in the redundancy pool with the transferred employees. If the ETO reason is a change in location, the redundancy termination process will be much more straightforward for obvious reasons. And what about employees on long-term sick or maternity leave and the redundancy consultation process? What happens with them? Employers should always remember to include employees on long-term sick or maternity leave when conducting a redundancy consultation process. They should be kept informed, receiving the same information and writing as other employees, as well as being actively involved in the consultation process, to the extent possible, of course. Ideally, consultation should happen face-to-face. Employers should both offer and try to accommodate requests for flexibility, such as meeting at the employee's home, for example, or having meetings outside of office hours. I think most people will know that employees on maternity leave have certain enhanced rights and that this exists in a redundancy process as well. Can you take us through the protection that employees on maternity leave will have if there is a redundancy process? Of course, Anne. An employee who is made redundant while on maternity leave is entitled to be offered suitable alternative employment in preference to other employees. This right is under the maternity and parental leave regulations. The employee in question does not need to apply for such employment. This right also applies to employees who are made redundant while on adoption or shared parental leave. If an employer does not offer an employee on maternity leave an alternative post, the dismissal will be automatically unfair and almost certainly discriminatory too. 
It's important to distinguish between the redundancy itself and the alternative employment. Being on maternity leave won't stop an employee being put at risk or made redundant. The right to trump others only applies in relation to alternative employment which is available within the company or its group. Thank you, Nick. There's a lot of heavy law to bear in mind when you're carrying out redundancies, so that's given us some useful tips on some really hot topics that we hear a lot of from our clients. That's all for our podcast today. Join us next time to hear about the thorny topic of whistleblowing. And thanks very much for listening today. Mm-hmm.